And now, Lord God, take uh, my words, which are just my words, and would you, Lord, speak to us through them, for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, these days, whether you, um, no matter where you are, it seems that we could say we hear and receive contending messages telling us what we are to believe. And what we believe then uh, reflects itself in how we act. We see that even in our gospel lesson. We hear these different messages all over. And very often we hear the conflicting messages in the same places whether it's through um, the implicit morales that we hear on film or TV, um, whether it's at work, or whether we hear it from a politician's mouth, whether we hear it in the implicit constructs behind social media, um, or even whether we hear it in church. Though these messages might not always be about spiritual things, they do truly condition us to a certain kind of mindset that affects the way we relate to God. Well, the Colossians, from our first lesson, were receiving contending messages as well. They had heard the gospel preached to them by Epaphras, who had heard it from Paul, and they received it with joy and with faith. And then there were these other teachers that came in and began to tell them something else. They told them that they must perform all kinds of actions, that they would have to eat and drink only specific things in a specific way, And that they, if they were truly Christians or truly following Jesus or truly religious, they would have to observe all different kinds of religious feasts. So later in his letter, Paul exposes what these regulations imposed on them. He exposes what they truly are and he calls them self-made religion. Basically says, it's good for nothing. Self-made religion is good for nothing. Well, the essence of these two different kinds of messages remains the same 2,000 years later. Either the law or the gospel. Either you strive and achieve and do, or else you receive what someone else has done for you. Paul refutes this message, the message of false hope, later in his letter to the Colossians. So we won't really get into it. But now, at the beginning of his letter, What we hear him doing is reminding them, repeating again what they've already heard. Isn't that what we do when we come here each week? Tell me again. Tell me again the truth. Tell me what I need to hear so that I can block out all the the other messages that are false. Paul starts by greeting them and then he gives this prayerful thanksgiving to God for the Colossians and he follows that thanksgiving with his intercessions for them. Wouldn't you love to have someone pray for you like that? There is Paul's prayer. Well, in these phrases of thanksgiving, Paul mentions that the Colossians had hope laid up for them in heaven, which was theirs through hearing the word of truth, the gospel, or the grace of God in truth, which is bearing fruit, he says. It's bearing fruit and increasing in all the world and in them. This spring, Scott and I were driving north. We were headed north to go to a family reunion. And we'd made a surprisingly early start for two non-morning persons on the road from the hotel. And Scott was gracious enough to let me sleep in the passenger seat. So after a few hours then, of course, we stopped for gas and it was time to switch drivers. Luckily for me, the gas station where we stopped had all of my favorite junk food. So (laughs) I stocked up on 
runts and good and plenty and propel water and also, of course, the king of snacks, kettle corn. I'd opened everything that I thought I would need to use so that I wouldn't have to reach around in the car to get them while he was asleep, and I was ready to go. And we got on the road. We were um, about, well, before we get there, Scott said, before he fell asleep, Scott said he was settling into sleep, and he said very kindly, actually, he, he said, we're still newlyweds, he said, if I could drive a little slower and not follow the other cars too closely, that would be great. <laughs> And admittedly, I was a little ticked off by this, but I only went 80 instead of 85, in obedience, of course, to him. I was enjoying the kettle corn. There we were. I looked down for one brief second as I was traveling in the passing lane um, and passing an 18-wheeler in the right-hand lane. I looked down to pick up one of those precious pieces of popcorn that had fallen into my lap, and I, I heard that sound, the sound we hate hearing, the rumble strip sound. I knew I'd swerved just a little bit, meandered out of my lane to the left. And so quickly I adjusted. And of course, in my haste, I adjusted too much. And I turned the wheel. I turned the wheel, and the wheel, the whole car skidded out of control into the right-hand lane, into the 18-wheeler that was um, just to our right. Thank goodness it was the middle part of the 18-wheeler. And then from there, we ricocheted off that truck and we headed now left into the guardrail, which stopped a lot of our incredible motion. We rolled over and stopped. The airbags deployed. We were there hanging upside down by our seat belts. And in the panic of that moment, we were unclear about what had actually happened. But what we knew was that we were both alive we knew that we could move our arms and legs. We were both awake, and we thought, we've got to get out of here. That smoky smell from the airbags said to us, get out of this place. So we pushed our way. We ejected ourselves from our seatbelts, and we pushed our way out through a door. We just wanted to get out of there, afraid, of course, that something worse would happen. Well, miraculously, we were the only vehicle severely affected by my folly, Waves of responders and emergency personnel checked us out. They managed even to get some of our bags out of the car so that by the time the ambulance brought us to the, to the emergency room, I realized that I had access to my teeny tiny purse Bible right there. I had no glasses. They had flown off in the, in the impact, but I had my teeny tiny purse Bible as they checked our vitals repeatedly and ran x-rays and CAT scans over the next several hours, I found myself drawn to the Psalms and to prayer. We were so grateful to be alive, and I felt so guilty for being the one who had almost gotten us killed. Accidents happened, truly, but it was my sin and my pride that led me to think that I could zoom around like I was invincible. So there I was, blind as a bat, with my little Bible up to my face. And the first psalm that I felt drawn to was, of course, Psalm 51. And I was confessing, confessing my sin to the Lord. And then as I did that, after I did that, I felt so free to rejoice. And I began to go on to Psalm 34, and Psalm 18, and Psalm 91. 
I marveled at what he had done. Scott and I were released that same day because we didn't have any broken bones. We didn't have any damaged organs, thanks be to God. My actions could have had horrific consequences, but God had given us, given me, an undeserved reprieve from the consequences of my pride. Scott and I were given amazing grace. I was given amazing grace that day. We've both looked back and marveled every day since then. This is what Paul is talking about. This is the message of the gospel. It's seen in the miraculous pattern of that day. In the big picture, for all men and women, this is the kind of reprieve that we receive from God in Jesus Christ. Through his death and his resurrection, we are forgiven our sins. As we hear the message of grace, we're transformed, or transferred, transported from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's light. Because of Jesus' death, our own sin and our death will no longer be our undoing. And this message of grace acts upon us, overtaking us, I would say like a rush, from the top of our heads to the bottoms of our feet, like spiritual adrenaline. This grace tells us that our salvation is not about our doing, but about God's doing on our behalf. And this grace then also implies that our livelihood, our protection and provision, our safety and our health and our daily bread, they are not about our doing, but they are about God's doing on our behalf. We hear that we can receive this message daily, especially when we have a quiet mind and a quiet body and a quiet soul. But for some of us, we're just not able to stop. We lie awake at night with racing minds. We can't sit still for one second like a shark will die if we stop moving. We think um, if we stop worrying, the world will fall apart. And then in the midst of all of that insanity of what goes on in our own hearts and minds, God in his abundant mercy overtakes us, doesn't he? He very often stops us in our tracks. It might happen when you hit an 18-wheeler at 80 miles an hour, but I hope not. It might happen when you get a phone call from a doctor saying that test results are malignant, but I hope that's not your story either. It might happen when you, like all of us, are stunned into silence this week by the prejudice and violence that you hear about on the news. Or maybe it will happen as simply as when your broken car radio imposes on you a stillness that you normally try to avoid. In these moments, we are so vulnerable, open and exposed to God, and he will show us things in those moments about ourselves the places in us that are dead. But he always also shows us those dead and dark places so that he can then breathe new life into them. Because you see, the thing about God's grace, his unmerited favor, is that it generates life. This is what we hear in the Gospels. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. A little bit of yeast leavens the whole lump, 
miraculous multiplication to make something delicious to eat. Or when Jesus tells the parable about the seed falling on different kinds of soil, and he describes the kind of fruit that grows when the seed falls on soil that is tilled, soil that's upturned and vulnerable. Jesus said, As for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The yield, the gospel kingdom yield, is about the multiplication also of disciples, which Jesus commands before he ascends into heaven. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Or when Paul, in Galatians, talks about the spiritual fruit that grows in the Christian heart by the power of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Grace works. Grace makes dead things come alive. The gospel of God's unmerited truth for us makes people who wouldn't follow anybody follow Jesus. The good news makes us good despite ourselves, generating within us spiritual fruit and miraculous obedience to the law, that same law that our sinful nature hates. This is what happened to me through that accident. A part of me that was dead came alive. This is what Paul is talking about here at the very beginning of his letter to the Colossians. The gospel of grace, the word of truth that has generated life and fruit in the whole world and also in the hearts and lives of those Colossians believers. Well, to close, I can't help but read from one of my favorite books, a book I've read many times, and I hope you have as well, a book that characterized my childhood that helped me come to faith at an early age. Of course, it's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you're familiar with the book, I'm going to tell you the ending, so now you'll be familiar with it. But if you're familiar with the book, the um, Jesus figure is a lion. And the Jesus figure in the chapter that is called The Deep Magic from the Dawn of Time submits to a cruel and unusual death in order to spare one who has sinned. And then, in the next chapter, called Deeper Magic from Before the Dawn of Time, Aslan, that lion, that Jesus figure, is miraculously raised from the dead. And in the chapter after that, and isn't that the chapter that our lives are about, in the chapter after that, Aslan then brings with him the two little girls that had stayed there all throughout his death, who had seen his miraculous rising. And Aslan brings Lucy and Susan to the abandoned castle of the evil white witch, which is littered with statues that were once living people. She had turned them to stone in her malice. Aslan breathes on them. And C.S. Lewis writes, I expect you've seen someone put a lighted match to a bit of newspaper, which is propped up in a grate against an unlit fire. And for a second, nothing seems to have happened. And then you notice 
a tiny streak of flame creeping along the edge of the newspaper. It was like that now. For a second after Aslan had breathed upon him, the stone lion looked just the same. Then a tiny streak of gold began to run along his white marble back, and then it spread, and then the color seemed to lick all over him as the flame licks all over a piece of paper. And then, while his hind corners were still obviously stone, the lion shook his mane, and all the heavy stone folds rippled into living hair. Then he opened his great red mouth, warm and living, and gave a prodigious yawn. And now his hind legs had come to life. He lifted one of them and scratched himself, and then, having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him and frisking round him, whimpering with delight and jumping to lick his face. Face. Aslan breathes on all of these dead stone statues, and they come back to life. God breathes upon us, his grace, his good pleasure, his mercy. Grace works to bring dead things back to life. There's a new sheriff in town. Sin and death rule no more. Ding dong, the white witch is dead, and Aslan is on the move. Jesus Christ has died and risen again. We are forgiven and free, and it is enough. No other messages matter. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love, your love that transforms us from what we once were to what, what we are in you. And we look forward to that day when we will be fully what we are in you. And until that day, Lord God, would you continue to breathe upon us. Shower us again and again with your grace. We need it every day. Bring us to life. In Jesus' name, amen.